up on today's show, lots of concern about what might happen this weekend in the Beltline in Calgary as protests continue. Inflation hit highs we haven't seen in 30 years in our country last month, and it's only going up. We'll talk about that. We'll also talk about immigration and how it will be affected thanks to the situation in Ukraine. I think these protesters are uh, from the anti-democracy group are actually pushing the limits of Section 2 of the Charter. And that's how we ended up seeing things like, uh, you know, Freedom Convoy, Freedom Rodeo, Freedom Breakfast, this type of thing. This is much different. This is a different type of protest that we've seen in the past. We thought they would stop and they won't. And now they're articulating that basically we want to do whatever we want to do. And so our job is to figure out how we sort of bring in Section 1, which is about placing reasonable limits on those um, those abilities to protest in the interests of community safety and well-being. That is the chief of police in the city of Calgary. Uh, protesters in the Beltline have worn out their welcome there. There's no question about it. Uh, every weekend for months, they've marched through the streets, rallying for a whole list of things. Mandates, primarily. Um, some of them, I mean, who knows? Who knows? Mandates. Let's just say it's mandates, okay? Um to put it bluntly, the residents and the business owners have, have had their fill. And last week, a few dozen of them showed up to counter-protest, as I said, uh, protesting the protesters. Predictably, that led to conflict. Police got involved, whatever. And it, the anticipation is it could be even worse this weekend. But now, police are under fire because they responded. Uh, city council held a special meeting this week to try and come up with some answers, or at least you know, put some pressure perhaps on police to come up with answers. Uh, They've written a letter to the Calgary Police Commission, which on its own is a bit of a question. I mean, they're all supposed to be arm's length groups. We're not supposed to have politicians directing police. And I guess technically they haven't, but the lines are getting fuzzy and it's leading up to what's going to happen this Saturday. And joining us to talk about where we've been, how we got here and where we're going is Doug King, who is a justice professor at Mount Royal University in Calgary and also a resident of the community affected. Doug, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you, Shay. Just give us the background. I mean, how long has this been going on in the Beltline? Well, you know, if you go back two years ago, um, the um, there were the Black Lives Matter protests that went uh, in the same area. They didn't last long. There weren't uh, particularly large numbers of people. And so they were typically over within about half an hour to an hour. Um, as the uh, protests related to the um, pandemic uh, mandates and those kinds of things started to take hold, um, you started to see a growing number. And that started about, uh, I would think, about 18 months or so ago. Now, how uh, we've got to where we are now is that you have a uh, uh, the Ottawa situation, the Coots Border situation, yeah. which seemed to have energized the protests here in Calgary. And um, it's it's been quite remarkable, I think, probably for the last two or three months. I think um, for some reasons I can't really quite understand is it wasn't perceived as being much different by the police. And so the police were responding in a, in a, in a manner that seemed to be useful about um, you know, 18 months ago, but it's been come, become quite ineffective now. The police are under intense scrutiny, a lot of criticism and a lot of pressure to do things differently this weekend. Taking a look at how they've handled this, I mean, these are protests. Have the protests technically verged into the area of being illegal? I mean, we do allow protest, right? Uh, Certainly. I mean, uh, uh, you know, the chief is right in relationship to, 
you know, it's uh, Section 2 of the Canadian Charter that we have the right to peaceful protest. But I think this is where people kind of start to stumble. You have the right to protest, uh, for sure, but you are not immune from legal action related to that protest if, if you, for example, break the Criminal Code of Canada, uh, break bylaw, those kinds of things. So, um, uh, you know, so for example, you could argue that uh, the protests are uh, violations of uh, disturbing the peace uh, rules within the Criminal Code of Canada. You could argue they're violations of mischief. You could argue that all sorts of bylaw offenses. And, you know, in some ways it's been quite quite kind of uh, frustrating but also kind of bewildering in the sense of you see these things happening, you know, as you correctly pointed out, I'm about, I live about two blocks away from there and I, every once in a while, will go down there just to watch to see what's, you yeah. know, kind of the show. I imagine I and, would too, yeah. Yeah, and you see, you know, you see people, you know, the protesters approaching people with uh, kids and they've got, you know, they're uh, yelling at the kids if they're wearing masks. Uh, you see, you know, I, I saw a couple of people decide to relieve themselves on the on the on the side of the road, and you know the police officers see this, but they don't do anything about it. Now that's not a criticism of those individual officers. I have a lot of uh, empathy for the officers that are on the front line. Mm-hmm. I just wonder about what they are being told they can and can't do, and so I think it goes up. And I'm sorry. Uh, Chief, but it lays at your feet right now. You have got to be a little bit more transparent, and a little bit more 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 forthcoming with uh, with what you're going to be doing. Right? Yeah. Um, you, uh, you know. The, one last point, and then I'll then I'll I'll let you in on this. But you know, for, we've been uh, in the Beltline area. We've been talked at by uh, the police and by city council and by our, our ward councillor. Um, and it's typically been through tweets. Now, most people don't have Twitter. So the tweets are being used to inform the media, and the media has then been informing us. It's about time the police started to talk with the residents, not at them. You know, so we'll see where that goes. We will. And he's promising it will look different this weekend, whatever that means. And I know uh, my colleagues on um, CHQR 770 this morning tried to pin him down. He's, you know, I'm not going to get into operational details, but it will be yep. different this weekend. I wanted right. to ask you as a justice professor, what we're seeing with city council talking to the police commission, the police commission going public with a bunch of different things, some of their members and things like that. Are we getting in an area where some of these things are crossing lines that should not be crossed, where we have politicians directing police action? Um, no, I don't think we're at that point yet. I, you know, I interpret the letter that City Council sent to the Police Commission as being appropriate, but it was also uh, an attempt for City Council to uh, deflect the yeah, and to deflect the, deflect the blame to say, we're not responsible for this. Come on, Calgary Police Commission, you step forward. I do think, you know, when all of this is over, uh, we're going to have to really do a kind of deep dive in terms of how we got here. Do we have the appropriate leadership in the Calgary Police Service? And is the, uh, you know, current model of civilian oversight in the province of Alberta and through the police commission, is that, is that appropriate? That's a, that's a model that goes back 50 years. Mm-hmm. So perhaps we need to start looking at 
different ways of doing it. And lastly, um, um, you know, uh, despite uh, you know, uh, you know, statements and documents that talk about community policing in Calgary. This is not community policing. Uh, this is um, we won't we won't really engage the community until the community starts howling. Um, that's that's not com- community policing. So I think a lot of things can be done could have been done differently. But hindsight's great. Sure. But we but we need to do a deep dive after all of this is over. Yeah, uh, Doug, I think you're you're right. If we ever find ourselves in this situation again, there better be a playbook left behind. Uh, I really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Anytime. Take care. You too. That is Doug King, who is a justice professor at Mount Royal University in Calgary, and as you heard, also a resident of the Beltline, which is the community that has been affected by these um, weekly protests. The mayor of Calgary says they're not protests. At this point, they've become parades and street festivals with, you know, food trucks and merchandise vendors and the whole thing. So she's talking about having bylaw increase their enforcement of people doing these sorts of things without the right kind of permitting. But she says in order for that to happen, they need support from the police. It's a mess. It's a mess. Um, And I don't know. I don't know where it goes from here. And, uh, you know, the police say what they're going to try and do. We've heard some reports that they might try and, you know, you can go to City Hall is what everybody says, you know, go to go to Olympic Plaza, go to go to City Hall, go to McDougal Center, go to one of the government buildings, go to Princess Island Park, something like that. Just don't bother these people in the Beltline anymore. They've been through enough. But I think and we've talked about this before. That's part. That's what the protest is. It's it's look at me, uh, you know. This is it's an event. It's a cause. It's a fight. It's it's something to do. Um, you know, I got a text from a listener. Pretty simple solution. She dropped the brain dead mandates. They're useless. They're outdated and ridiculous. You've said yourself. Problem solved. I don't know if problem would be solved. I agree with you. The mandates at this point, uh, you know, I think the mandates, as I've said a million times, were brought in in order to encourage people to get vaccinated. You've gone as far down that road as you can. There's no, you're not going to get any more people back. If they're not vaccinated now, they're not getting vaccinated. So uh, I agree with you in terms of most of the mandates don't make sense to me anymore. I think, maybe I'm wrong, but I think if you removed all of these mandates, if there were none left, I think there's one left now, right? If you're unvaccinated, it's still about traveling. If you removed any mandate that you could think of, um, there would still be some of these protesters out doing their thing every weekend. Inflation rate in our country has hit its highest level in more than 30 years in February. Sorry, i got to fix this microphone. And I know it's going to make that squeaking noise. Um, 5.7%, which is a number last seen in August of 1991, if you can believe it. Big piece of that, of course, is gas prices. They're up more than 32% year over year. But still, you take them out of the equation, it falls to 47 which is still very very high, and it doesn't look like it's slowing down. So what's going on, and what can we expect? We're going to chat with Moshe Lander, who is an economist at Concordia University. Uh, Moshe, thanks for joining us. It's uh, always nice to chat. Always my pleasure, and I'm going to throw in here right now, since you were talking about Irish music, yep. uh, Thin Lizzy, the boys are back in town. Yeah, that's good. Anything with you two, uh, the Dubliners, of course, and the Coors. So there, we've done our... Oh, uh, those those are, I think she has, I think she has you two ready to go. And I, I suggested uh, Flug and Molly drunken lullabies earlier, so I think she's got that one. There's a, there's a good list, right? I mean, it's great music. It's so much fun on a day like today, too. Absolutely. 
Pogues could do that. Anyway, let's get down to business. <laughs> We're talking about inflation in Moshe. Um, this is crazy. We have not seen numbers like this in 30 years, correct? Yeah, it's it's uh, one shocking number after the other. And when you start breaking it down into components, looking at say, gasoline or groceries yep. or rent, they're also rising at levels not seen in sometimes 40 years. So, yeah, it, it's a once-in-a-generation experience that we're seeing right now. So we see the gas prices up, you know, like a third over the course of the year, and everybody says, take that out of the equation. Okay, you take that out, we're still at 4.7%, you know, way more than the targeted area of two. Um, So where else is it hitting us besides the gas prices? Groceries uh, are are certainly one of them. And part of the grocery-driven inflation number is gasoline prices, right? Right. Uh, Canada's hugely reliant on getting our groceries from uh, other countries because, you know, after a harsh winter, it's not really the growing season yet. And so uh, part of that is that transportation cost of getting it into the country. And we're seeing it in rents. Uh, And so, you know, the, the housing market shortage and, and the fact that all of us are kind of reconsidering how we work and live uh, is driving some of that the increase in rent as well. And you, know, you make a really good point. Like people say, remove the price of gas. Okay, you remove the price of gas, but the price of gas affects pretty much every other area where we're seeing inflation. I mean, that's one that nobody can escape. So you can't really just remove it from the equation. No, I, when when we remove it, we're looking at something called core inflation. And, and the logic behind it is not to say that it's not important, that we should disregard it. It's that it's volatile, yeah. right? So gasoline prices go up and down on a daily basis, right? And so if we had the Bank of Canada responding every time we have a long weekend and gas prices go up, right, they'd be yo-yoing the interest rate in a way that would make it so disconcerting for the economy. So it's not that it's not important. It, it's just that it's not part of the Bank of Canada's chief uh, metric for decision making merely because they, they don't want to be in that situation where they're confusing uh, households with uh, interest rate that goes up on Friday and down on Monday. Okay, that makes sense. So what are we, I mean, I know there's probably multiple factors, but when we take a look at what's going on and why we're seeing it, you know, this isn't the first month, of course, we've seen this trend for a while. What's going on? What's driving this inflation? So it's it's that general catch-all term of supply-side issues, right? Supply disruptions uh, and constraints and things like that. So it starts with something as basic as just getting goods from, say, China uh, out onto store shelves in Edmonton and Calgary, right? There's um, problems in China right now where they're seeing a, a spike in COVID cases and uh, auto manufacturers and uh, you know goods manufacturers, toy manufacturers, they're shutting down their factories Um, provinces are on lockdown in China. So right then and there, getting goods out of China is becoming much, much more expensive. Then even if you manage to get it to the port and start to ship it, now you got to deal with the shipping industry. And the same way that oil prices are benefiting us in Alberta, uh, it's causing the higher cost of shipping fuels. Uh, That means that getting those goods that do make it out of China over to the port in Vancouver is becoming a lot more expensive. And then when you get it to Vancouver, if you're not dealing with forest fires in the summer, flooding in the winter... Um, and, and wiping out highways and things like that. You're dealing with COVID restrictions. And uh, there was that thing about a month ago about the convoy of people protesting, you know, the idea of vaccinations and masking. And, um, you know, that, that just gums everything up. And so by the time that those goods do make it to the shelf, all of those extra costs have to be borne by somebody. And we're unfortunately bearing the brunt of it. Yeah, it's always the consumer. You're absolutely right. Now, of course, we've got this situation in Europe and uh, all the uncertainty and the tension surrounding that. How does that affect us here in Canada or does it? Is that causing any problems with inflation? 
So it does to some extent, right? When the Europeans take a principled stand and say, that's it, we're not buying stuff from Russia anymore. Okay, where are you going to buy it from? Yeah. So they go looking elsewhere to buy it. Well, you can imagine that if all of a sudden thousands of customers decided they wanted to buy Doritos, the price of Doritos would start to go up, right? Because there's just all of these new consumers that are found. So when all of these Europeans start showing up in other markets where they haven't been traditionally saying, we're here, um, they're driving prices up. And it's not that they're doing it with intent. It's the cost of taking a principled stand against Russia. And so we're, we're seeing it there. But we're also seeing it in Alberta in the form of if you shut off Russian gas and oil, uh, that's going to constrain the supply of global oil and gas. Well, guess what? Whoever's producing oil and gas then is going to have the winning ticket. Yeah. And that's us in Alberta, right? But for us in Alberta, where we talk last month that, you know, hey, the government's running a surplus, anybody who uses oil and gas as an input in any stage of their production process is now seeing a huge increase in their costs. And so whether that's transportation or whether that's running a factory or keeping the lights on, all of a sudden, they're seeing those costs go up as well. So it's coming at us from a variety of different angles. You know, you mentioned taking a principled stand and being and willing to bear the price of that because there is a price. Has there been any work done? I mean, is there a limit? Uh, I know the U.S. made some tough decisions regarding Russian oil and things like that. And we know Europe is facing an even tougher decision and uh, really not jumping in with both feet. But um, is there a limit to what people are willing to do for the good of Ukraine and the Ukrainian people to say, yeah, I'm willing to pay this price? I, I think there's a limit to what any of us are willing to do for any particular social cause, right? Yeah. Like how, how many people would say that they believe in environmentalism, but when they're confronted with $4 a liter for gasoline, they say, okay, that's my limit, right? Yeah. Um, we don't believe in nuclear uh, weapons until you realize that this country is engaged in that particular practice, and all of a sudden we can't buy their goods. Then you start saying, well, maybe a little nuclear weaponization is at that, right? So I, I think there's always a limit, but I think the, the broader issue is if, if – the government were to say to us that this principal stand comes with this cost. Sure. So at least we can see in front of us, you know, here's the debit side, here's the credit side, and let's weigh it up. We can at least make a better informed decision than just saying we're taking a principled stand, but we're not going to tell you what the cost of our decision is. Uh, it, it's hard for us to vote whether we agree with the stand or not because we really don't know what the costs are. And then when we get these shocking numbers, we say, is this part of the cost? Uh, I don't know that I signed up for that. Right, exactly. Where are we going? I guess that's the last question. We know the Bank of Canada is stepping in, raising rates. Um, Will that be enough to offset what's going on around the world? I mean, just what are the predictions in terms of inflation? Yeah, so it will eventually work. The Bank of Canada has no shortage of interest rate hikes ahead of them if they need to do it, right? And so if you're of a certain age, you can remember interest rates in the double digits, closing in on 20% and things like that 40 years ago. So they, they will get it done eventually. It's just how fast are we going to let them get it done? And so if we get in their way by making outrageous wage demands to try and keep up with inflation, or if we start seeing the government start pumping cash into the economy to try and help those that are most at risk because of inflation, that's, that's fine. But it's just going to slow down the task of the Bank of Canada. And it just means that they're going to have to do more interest rate hikes than they would otherwise have to do or it's going to take more months and more years than it otherwise would have to. Uh, but we'll get back to 2% eventually. Um, the, the best thing that I could suggest is, much as it hurts, uh, we have to let the Bank of Canada do what they need to do and not get in their way. Uh, and, and we could get back there within, say, 6 to 12 months, as long as no other surprises come our way. Which is kind of interesting, because, okay, you're not going to pay the inflationary rates, but you are going to pay the increased interest rates. So, I mean, either way, you're going to pay through this. Yeah, and it's it's unavoidable, right? Yeah. That, that's the thing, is that inflation comes with a cost. And unfortunately, we didn't ask for it, and we didn't want it. 
but that's the way it goes. And it's not like anybody's necessarily profiting from this uh, in, in the government offices, at least, right? Um, anybody who lent money is probably happy with high inflation, but anybody who's borrowing, which is yeah. a lot of households, are probably not too happy these days. Yeah, and a little worried about what's in the future. Uh, Moshe, great stuff. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Anytime. That is Moshe Lander, an economist at Concordia University. And yeah, when you sort of break it down that way, right, it's you're paying no matter what. Unfortunately, it always falls on us, the taxpayer slash consumer. That's where it eventually lands. You know, they say it rolls downhill. Well, here it comes because we've got, you know, you've got the cost of inflation. So they're dealing with that, which means what? Well, we're paying more. They're passing the costs on to us. Then the government needs to intervene or the Bank of Canada needs to intervene. What are they going to do? Increase the cost of borrowing. So, I mean, ultimately, it's going to cost you more, as Moshe said, no matter what. I want to have a conversation here that I think is going to be interesting. When we're talking about what's going on in Ukraine right now, we know to this point already uh, about 2 million refugees have been created. The anticipation it is there will be millions more. So um, that's only in three weeks. Um, what happens? The UN saying we're predicting uh, the worst refugee crisis since World War II. We know our government has vowed to welcome as many of these refugees as possible. It's going to be a big influx. It's going to impact immigration around the world, including here in our country. So what does it look like? We're going to find out. We're going to chat now with Christina Clark Kazak, who is an associate professor at the University of Ottawa School of Public and International Affairs. Uh, Christina, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Yes, thanks for having me. So in a crisis like this, uh, the first question is, you know, is there, a, is there, well, there is, there's a moral obligation, and we're seeing a lot of countries answer that moral obligation and say, yes, we'll do what we can to, you know, at least provide temporary safe haven for some of these people. But is there more than that? Is there a legal obligation? Is there, is there any sort of treaties or anything like that? Or is this just countries doing what, what's right? So, as you mentioned, there is a moral obligation, but there is also a legal obligation under international law. So, every human being has the right to claim asylum under multiple UN conventions, including the UN Convention on Refugees. And so, uh, countries are obligated to allow them to access their territories and also then to make a refugee claim. Um, where do we expect most of the refugees from Ukraine to end up? I mean, it, and it, it will happen in stages, right? I mean, the final destination will invariably be different than where they end up, you know, now or next week or next month, right? Exactly. So this is an unfolding situation, and it's it's moving very quickly, and, it, you know, every day we're getting new information. Um, to date, not many have arrived yet. And just to clarify also that they're coming here under a temporary visa program. So they're not coming in as refugees, unlike, for example, Syrians who were resettled here as refugees. And so I think that's an important distinction because they're coming here with temporary visas and an open work permit. Mm -hmm. So they're going to likely then go to where the jobs are, but also where they have community. So as you know, there's a large Ukrainian-Canadian community across Canada, um, a lot in the prairies, um, and so we'll probably we'll see people arriving where they have family or community connections, and then from there it will depend on where they can get work. What is the situation in Canada right now? I know we've heard a lot of talk from government officials removing barriers and, and expediting the process. What is the process that's been put in place so far? 
So currently the process is an expediting of processing of the claims that are currently in the system. So even before the Russian invasion, there were people who were applying to come to Canada through family sponsorship, through a whole host of different immigration channels. So those uh, uh, um, applications are now being expedited through a web process, but also through a help phone. Um, The government has also announced that they will be soon opening up the temporary visa program, which I just mentioned, and so that has no cap. So anyone who would like to come who can apply for a visa and who gets approved will be able to come, but that is not yet open. And there's also a family reunification route. So currently um, that family reunification route is only open to people who are spouses or partners of a Canadian citizen or their children, their dependent children. Uh, The government has hinted that that might open up to other family members, but again, we don't have an announcement yet. Um What's the expectation with what we're seeing? Is there anything else that we can compare to to try and get some understanding of what this will look like? I mean, I know Syria was big and there was a, there was a huge repatriation effort among communities in Canada, but is there anything that comes close to what we're expecting to see in our country as a result of this? So I think that we can look to the Syrian um, example um, as a potential um, uh, marker. I think the difference here, again, is that uh, under Syrian, the Syrian program, it was a resettlement program where you had a government-assisted refugee stream as well as a private sponsorship scheme. Yeah. And so that was very managed, and there was a cap. There was a target that was placed, and then um, individuals were uh, brought under that scheme. In this case, it's an open question. Um, So people are coming temporarily. Um, The other thing to just bear in mind is that when refugees arrive in Canada through um, a scheme like private sponsorship, they actually arrive as permanent residents. Um, But under this scheme, they're going to be temporary. So that might actually deter some people from wanting to come because it's not a long-term permanent um, protection solution. It's a temporary solution. Um, So I think what we will be seeing are people who have ties to Canada um, and who have maybe, for example, a job offer. But it's very difficult to predict the scale. And this is why, um, you know, immigrant and refugee groups are asking the government to try to give them a better sense of numbers and the the timing so that they can adequately prepare uh, the settlement services that um, these individuals are going to need once they arrive in Canada. What's a situation like this? I mean, what's the anticipated impact on the country, you know, in terms of many different ways? We often hear a lot of people say, oh, it's going to cost us so much money, it's going to cost us so much money. Is that a reality? You know, what is the impact on the country that's welcoming, you know, an influx of refugees like this? So um, I think there has to be a distinction made between countries who are the first point of arrival, so countries like Poland, for example, sure. and Canada. So we are a tertiary um, a place that where people are coming after they've already um, been displaced once. So I think it allows us more time to plan and more time to manage. That's why we still have a visa in, pro- in place, because people will have to actually apply to come here. So I think that we need to make that distinction. However, it is true that at the beginning there is a, an investment, a financial investment that needs to be made by Canada. In fact, the Prime Minister has already announced some additional funding, which is good news because we don't want processing of these visas to take away from the uh, people who are already in the system from other countries, right? So that's a good thing. Um, There will be an initial investment both in terms of the human labor that's required to process visas and welcome people and provide services like language training, um, education, employment, housing, etc. However, Canada is, um, 
you know, it does need labor. It does need individuals to come. Um, even before uh, this recent announcement, Canada had um, introduced its highest immigration levels in a couple of years um, in terms of targets of people that we wanted to come to immigrate. And so if people are able to integrate and are able to find jobs and pay taxes and become members of the community, Canada is enriched mm-hmm. both financially but also culturally and socially by people who come here. Yeah, makes perfect sense. You, you raise a good question there. I wanted to ask you before I let you go. So uh, with the, the plans that we're making to, to, to welcome refugees from Ukraine, you're saying that will be over and above our regular immigration process? Like they won't supersede other people that are in line or, you know, in, you know, in transit or part of the system of getting people in, integrated into Canada. It's not going to mean that uh, immigrants from other countries are going to be pushed back and told to wait till next year because we've got to deal with this. It's going to be over and above? That is what we are advocating for. I mean, the government has promised um, that that is what's going to happen. Minister Fraser, the Minister of Immigration, has said that the their, his department is, is capable of multitasking, as he puts it. So he's saying that because of these additional resources, the people who are already in the system and applying from elsewhere, like Afghanistan, for example, yeah. um, will still be uh, processed in a timely manner. That remains to be seen, and I think it depends actually on the scale um, of applications we have coming from Ukraine. And at this point, it's impossible to predict how much that's going to happen. In terms of the social services, again, at this point, the government has not actually announced any services specific to Ukrainians arriving because it's not a private sponsorship or a refugee resettlement context. It's a temporary visa situation. And so, again, I think that people who provide services to immigrants and newcomers will find that they're going to have um, an extended need um, and that the government will have to find resources to respond to that need in terms of, for example, language training and, you know, employment um, connections and those kinds of things. So I, I think we're still in the early stages, and I think the government um, is wary of announcing before they have a sense of the scale yeah. and the timeline. Makes perfect sense, right? Get your ducks in a row. Um, Christina, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. You bet. That is Christina Clark-Kazak, an associate professor at the University of Ottawa School of Public and International Affairs. Great insight. Good to know. I mean, we know that our our country has said, yes, we're, we're going to welcome as many of these people as we possibly can. We want to be there to support the people of Ukraine, uh, at least with that temporary safe haven designation. And then we can work forwards um, to a more permanent situation for those who want that. So uh, we're doing what we can. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.